This is the Heartland Daily Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Heartland Institute's Daily Podcast. I'm Sterling Burnett, Director of the Arthur B. Robinson Center on Climate and Environmental Policy and Managing Editor of Environment and Climate News. I'm pleased to have as a returning guest today, Steve Gorham. Steve is Executive Director of the Climate Science Coalition of America and author of three books on energy, climate change, and sustainable development. With the U.S. Supreme's Court, with the U.S. Supreme Court's recent decision in West Virginia v. EPA, the world of climate regulation has changed since I last had Steve on in January 2021. And that's what he's here to discuss today. Steve, thanks for joining us again. Sterling, great to join you again. And yeah, it was a major decision uh, last week. Yeah, no, it, uh, you know, they had a lot of big decisions this term, but none of them are, I think, more consequential than that one. But we'll get into it. But before we do, before we discuss West Virginia VEPA and why it's important for our listeners who may not be familiar with you or your work, please tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you came to work on energy and climate issues and what the Climate Science Coalition of America is. Thanks, Sterling. Uh, so I, w- I am a, currently uh, a speaker, an author, uh, an independent columnist, and I write about energy, climate, uh, industry, business. Um, I'm also the executive director of the Climate Science Coalition of America. Um, a little bit of history. I was uh, 30 years in the electronics industry, Motorola, and a number of other f- firms, uh, electrical engineering background, MBA, uh, out of work business executive in 2008, didn't want to leave the Chicago area to go find another spot uh, at the same level, and instead uh, started researching. I wrote a book on, uh, I wrote all of, read all of Al Gore's books and many others, decided he was not correct, wrote a book called Climatism. Science, Common Sense, and the 21st Century's Hottest Topic. Uh, published that in 2010. Uh, shortly afterwards, uh, uh, Tom Harris, who's the executive director of the International Climate Science Coalition, asked me to uh, be the executive director of, of the U.S. branch. Um, the International Climate Science Coalition is an international uh, organization with uh, branches in Canada, the U.S., New Zealand and Australia. And so since I think it was about 2011-2012 I've been uh, associated with Tom and head of the Climate Science Coalition of America. I'm a bit of a one-man band here. Um and as I say I go out and speak to businesses and industry or universities and I've actually uh, I'm an advisor to the, Art- the Heartland Institute and have worked with uh, you and and your folks quite a bit. Um uh, normally, I do write a number of articles, but I, that's been on hold for a while. I'm writing a fourth book, and I don't seem to find uh, now I have time to do both. So uh, hopefully that'll be out at the end of the year. But I uh, wrote two other books on the way the madman, mad world of climatism uh, and outside the green box, rethinking sustainable development. And uh, so I spend uh, my full-time efforts uh, looking at what's going on in energy, looking at what's going on around the world, and looking at what's going on with what I call climate change mania, the, the mistaken idea that uh, a small human emissions to a tra- trace gas can cause dangerous global warming. I, I call that climatism. 
and unfortunately it's uh it's pretty much accepted by every major uh, leader in the world uh the G8 and many others but uh you know the bottom line is that the the science doesn't show that we're that we're uh, the current warming is different than in the past and uh, it's very likely that uh climate continues to be dominated by uh, natural factors not man-made emissions so anyway, you and I are kind of on the same page here, and, and that's what we're both working on, trying to get uh, society back to their senses a little bit and, and go trying, after real, envir- real environmental issues. Yeah, trying to get the message out about uh, what the science really shows and why people should follow it. So, Steve, yep. what was at issue in West Virginia v. EPA? So um, the, uh, the case actually came out of the uh, – uh, 2015 uh, Clean Power Plan, uh, which was introduced by the EPA and the Obama administration in 2015, and that plan called for a called for all of the states to reduce carbon dioxide emissions from electrical power plants by 32 percent by 2030. And the EPA said itself that this is a generation shifting effort. The idea that we would shift all of our uh, power uh, in the United States to uh, so-called renewable forms, largely wind and solar, get rid of coal plants and other uh, plants emitting uh, carbon dioxide emissions. Uh, That plan was uh, stayed by the Supreme Court in 2016, and then um, uh, the uh, Trump administration uh, came out with with a different uh, a policy uh, they call the Affordable Clean Energy Rule in 2019, and uh, said that uh, inside the fence of power plants was where they were going to be focusing their efforts on coal plants, not statewide sort of things. But uh, right at the end of uh, Mr. Trump's presidency, the U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia vacated that Trump plan as well. And normally when, when a plan is vacated, um, you go back to the previous plan, the Clean Power Plan, which was never overturned. It was just stayed. But uh, And so the, the, uh, the Biden administration was interested to reestablishing that and, and establishing a new rule similar to the Clean Power Plan. Uh, so uh, West Virginia led a number of other states that appealed to the Supreme Court uh, opposing and tried to get them to rule on the clean power plan to clarify what EPA's powers would be. And um, that... Uh, sort of, a, sort of a, at the same time, a retroactive and preemptive strike, right? Yes. And it, uh, and so that was, that was handed down uh, last week. And uh, the Supreme Court basically said that... Uh, Generation shifting was was not something that came out. By the way, the the EPA's powers came from the from the Clean Air Act of 1977, amended 1990, and possibly after that. And they listed uh, more than 50 substances EPA would be able to regulate. Carbon dioxide was not one of those substances in in the original plan, and has never been put in there by Congress. Uh, but but the EPA basically said that. Uh, a generation-shifting approach was not something that Congress envisioned. Something that was, would cost uh, the states billions and billions of dollars was not something Congress had envisioned. 
Uh, they also called it uh, a major questions doctrine. Uh, they applied a, a, a part of law that the current uh, court is holding with called major questions doctrine, which basically said when there's a major question, Congress itself must make a determination, and the EPA uh, does not have the power uh, to go out and, and do something as, as drastic as the Clean Power Plan or as major as as the Biden administration was was. Uh, was considering. Yeah, it's and a matter so of. By, sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. Well, it's just a matter of uh, the major questions doctrine. It says, look, if there's are important political or economic um, uh, questions at stake, the Constitution says Congress passes laws, and yes. uh, the court said, you know, we looked at this, and it looks like Congress has considered restrictions on CO2 on a number of occasions, and they have failed to act on them. They haven't they have, passed carbon fact, taxes. They haven't imposed cap and trade, which is basically what yep. this would have done. And uh, with con- just because Congress didn't act the way you want them to doesn't give you license to act outside of Congress's authority. And um, so that uh, and, 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 you know, we'll get to it. But, you know, that ruling, uh, though this is a case against the EPA, it seems to me it, it, it's a broader it has broader implications for the Biden administration's uh, uh, broader green energy plans and uh, broader implications for all sorts of regulations that might be major questions. Well, it does. And as a matter of fact, the court mentioned a couple of other recent cases uh, in their um, their write-up on this, in their decision. They talked about uh, how the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention claimed it had the authority under Public Health Service Act to impose a nationwide moratorium on evictions of tenants. And uh, the Supreme Court overturned that uh, a few months back. And then there was another uh, major, another one they called part of major questions doctrine that said uh, uh, what the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, OSHA, wanted a vaccine mandate for private workers and again, this court said that, that that was a major question that should be decided by by uh, uh, Congress yeah. and not by um, these uh, bureau- bureaucratic organizations like the EPA. So it is really a, a big change in in how things are done in the United States. It's going to rein in not only the EPA but other bureaucracies and uh, force Congress to really decide. And as you say, five times Congress failed to pass uh, cap and trade on carbon dioxide over the last 30 years. A few of those were voted down and some just were not brought to a vote because they they knew they didn't have the votes to pass it. So uh, the will of the representatives of the people doesn't seem to want to regulate carbon dioxide as much as the EPA seems to want to do. Yeah. So um, why was this ruling important as both a political and economic standpoint? Well, it's it's uh, we're in the midst of uh, of a global energy crisis right now. As a matter of fact, we have uh, uh, a perfect example of how not to do things in Europe. Um, uh, I just saw the other day that the price of of uh, natural gas in Europe went up to 170 euros per megawatt. It's been climbing pretty steadily in the last two months. Two years ago, that was 15 to 20 euros per megawatt, and it was very flat uh, 2019, 2020. 
Now it's up to 170. It's more than eight times. And much of this has come from the green policies in Europe and the forced adoption of wind and solar and the retirement of of, uh, coal-powered plants, retirement of of nuclear plants in Germany. Unfortunately, we have similar things going on here in the United States. Uh, We have many... Go ahead. No, go ahead. You go ahead. I was just going to say we have many states that have said uh, they're going to be net zero uh, uh, carbon dioxide emissions uh, by 2040 or 2050. Uh, California, Washington, uh, many others. Michigan is is in the process of closing uh, uh, some of their nuclear plants, some of their coal-fired power plants. Uh, New York, and many of these others. And these are going to have real impacts on the people of of the state. And uh, a bigger impact would have been the clean power plan coming from the EPA. And so now it's it's going to be more difficult for EPA to, uh, to uh, try and make these wholesale changes um, and, and impact uh, uh, citizens and, and their uh, energy costs. I think Europe's example shows another thing as well. It shows the importance of national sovereignty. Um, you know, we're part of it's, – it's not a treaty. He, uh, uh, neither Obama uh, nor Biden has submitted it to the Senate for approval. But we're part of something called the Paris Climate Agreement. Mm-hmm. And before that, we were um, – uh, we were part of the Kyoto Protocol, which also the Senate didn't act on. They did um, not, right? That we were one of, it, one of the only major countries that didn't pass the Kyoto Protocol. <laughs> yeah. So, but but we were still part of it. I mean, the executives acted like uh, they'd given it to the Senate. The Senate approved, so they yeah. moved merrily on their way. Um, but we didn't, and uh, so far we haven't ceded sovereignty to the United Nations or. Um, you know, uh, the the uh, international bodies that were part of uh, regional bodies. Um, but many European countries did cede their sovereignty to the, the so-called European Union, right? And so even yep. countries that don't want to go down this path are being forced to do so, not by, you know, everyone loves to talk about democracy and, oh, we're Democrats and we love liberal democracies. But the European Union is not a democracy. It's not elected by the people. They're bureaucrats appointed by governments. And yep, those governments, uh, they, so out of the, you know, uh, uh, Brussels or the Hague, I forget where the uh, climate body is located. You know, they're issuing all these rules that are being forced on their member countries, uh, whether their member countries want to, want to agree to them or not. So that's, that's a point in favor of cont- maintaining your sovereignty, I think. <laughs> it is. And and similarly for the states, there are many states that are, are you know, I've, I've mentioned a number of states that are going in a big yeah. for net zero, but there are other states that are, are not doing that, that don't don't feel that that is a good policy. And, uh, you know, I come down on the side of, of those states are right. It's very unlikely uh, the world is spending $500 billion a year to try and uh, control the temperature of the planet by controlling carbon dioxide. It's very unlikely, I believe, that that's going to have a measurable effect on global temperatures because, as you and I have both discussed in the past, yeah. uh, global temperatures and climate are dominated by natural factors uh, from the oceans, the biosphere, and many other things, and not by human emissions, which are a very small part of things. 
So, in your view, uh, carbon dioxide regulation is unnecessary, and I think you'd agree that it's counterproductive. Well, I think it is, and again, we're we're there are so many restrictions right now that are going in around the world. It's just astonishing. Um, first off, let me say a little about carbon dioxide. Uh, uh, your uh, listeners may not know, but there's a huge amount of carbon dioxide. Uh, uh, in the Earth right now, uh, as a matter of fact, the oceans hold 50 times as much carbon dioxide as what is in the atmosphere, and the oceans and the biosphere are always releasing carbon dioxide and absorbing it. When you look at the EPA's uh, carbon cycle model, and they're very open with it, um, every day nature puts about 20 times as much carbon dioxide into the atmosphere as all of Earth's industries 20 times as much, and it removes about the same amount. As well as you look back in in, uh, distant Earth history, we've had many times when atmospheric carbon dioxide was was, uh, at a higher concentration level, much higher than it is today. And some of those periods were during a very cold weather as well, ice ages and other sorts of things. Uh, So the natural factors, it appears, if you look at the whole picture, dominate carbon dioxide uh, that means that if we completely eliminate emissions, we probably are not going to be able to see a difference in global temperatures. But yet the counterproductive thing that you mentioned is a fact. We have uh, just crazy things going on. Uh, I mean, again, an example is Netherlands. Netherlands have said uh, 92% of the households in Netherlands have natural ga- use natural gas. The country has decided they're going to disconnect all gas lines, 7 million lines, by 2050, they're also telling their farmers that uh, they've got to stop uh, uh, rearing so many cattle because of the the uh, methane emitted by cattle. And so we have we have farmers driving into Netherlands in tractors and protesting in a big way. Oh, it's not just the uh, cattle. Yeah, no, they they they're telling farmers. <laughs> they actually said publicly, some farmers just aren't going to be in business. And it's not just cattle farmers, ranchers. It is. Um, the use of of uh, pesticides and and um, yep. fertilizers that fertilizers. rely on fossil yeah. fuels. We got to get rid of that stuff. <laughs> if people starve, okay, that's a sacrifice we have to make. Uh, evidently, the Netherlands thinks to uh, to save the planet, despite the fact there's no evidence that the planet is under threat. I mean, real evidence, not climate models, and uh, despite the fact that nothing. I mean, the Netherlands is so relatively small, nothing they do. They could turn out the lights tomorrow, and it would have not one iota of impact on absolutely true global carbon dioxide emissions or methane emissions. It just wouldn't count. It wouldn't matter. What probably <laughs> probably China and India combined put out in a day, what the Netherlands does in a year. In a year, probably. Well, there are bigger areas, too. The Northern Territory of Australia is now warning of future blackouts because they've been closing Yep. Coal plants and other power plants. Matter of fact, right here in the Midwest, the MISO, the Mid-Continent System Operator, says we have a shortage of capacity, and they may have we may have possibly rolling blackouts uh, this year. We've had uh, some big instances. Uh, February of 2021, Texas for 72 hours had four million people that they could not get electricity to. They had to shut them off. You don't. By the way, you don't have to tell me anything about what Texas went through because my house got down to the lower 50s during that shutdown. Yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> we, we, we had no power. Located? I lost, um, it cost me a lot when my, my pool pipes froze. Uh, I'm in Texas. I'm in the Dallas area. And, uh, Are you in Dallas? Yeah. Oh, wow. And uh, my wife and I sat under a buffalo hide blanket that I had for a couple of days. And and the people that were able to run the electricity during those three days got $10,000 electric bills. But something like 210 people died. There was over $200 billion in in, uh, in damage. And, I, you know, I, I actually talked to the uh, – to the uh, a guy who was on the board – of ERCOT, yep. um, and he said they planned for a worst-case temperature of 11 degrees Fahrenheit, which was what it got down to uh, 2010 in Dallas uh, and Fort Worth, 11 degrees uh, uh, Fahrenheit. Well, I, I went to the National Weather Service and found a dozen times when it got, had in the past when it had been down to 3 degrees or less. Yeah. So they, they flatly underestimated. They estimated a maximum demand of 53 gigawatts, and uh, and it was like 75 gigawatts was the demand. A lot of people using electric heat in Texas, and so they had to shut everything down. But, but you know, it, it wouldn't have mattered had they not shut down um, multiple coal-fired power plants uh, and replaced them with wind power and, to a lesser extent, solar power. Um, in the days – the day before – the front hit, or two days before the front hit, wind and solar yeah. were providing um, about 52% of the power in the state. And the wind stopped blowing. And the turbines went offline. And yep. these clouds moved in. Um, and so the sun wasn't powering those panels. Yep. And by the time the wind started picking back up, the storm had hit. Frozen turbines covered... Uh, uh, solar panels and um, the remaining power couldn't keep up, especially since, uh, you know, uh, ERCOT, ERCOT can be blamed for a lot, um, allowing those coal plants to be replaced with wind and solar primarily. But during the shortage, they said, oh, well, we've got to divert um, natural gas to um, residences. Uh, to residences. And so they yep. diverted away from <laughs> the, uh, the the pipelines and the stations that heated <laughs> natural gas going through the pipelines. Yep. And so they yep. froze. They froze <laughs> up. But even, I mean, the wind and solar during those three days got only 6% of the rated output. And that's yep. not what they were expecting. They weren't expecting much. But you can't build a power system on that today. No. And Texas, for decades, spent money build, building wind and solar and not expanding the capacity of their of their reliable stuff. They no. bought weather dependent. They built weather dependent electricity. It wasn't a matter and, of not uh, expanding quite a capacity, though. It wasn't a matter of not expanding capacity. It was a matter of closing capacity, of shuttering reliable capacity. Yeah, right. Well, they did that too. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it was madness. We we went from a power system designed by engineers, and it's happening not just in Texas. It happened elsewhere, designed by engineers, to one designed by politicians who have no engineering background, and they just think if they wave their magic wand, <laughs> if they wave their magic wand, power just falls like manna from heaven, and the wind just blows when they want it to, and the sun just shines when they want it to, and it provides enough. And you know what? That's wrong. <laughs> they they yep. don't they don't control the weather, and we don't we no longer sacrifice virgins for rain. 
Um, <laughs> but it seems that that's what some in the Texas legislature would have us go back to because they, many of them like wind and solar. They keep subsidizing yep. it. So, um, until they, they force wind and solar to pay for reliable baseload power to stay online, um, when they're, uh, when they're generating power at close to zero cost because, well, they're highly subsidized, um, so that they'll be available when they're not generating power at all, uh, we're going to have a problem here in Texas. And anyone who follows California's example, which is to some extent what Texas did, um, is, is, is in for that as well, as you said, the Midwest operator. So moving on a little bit, Steve, yep. since it's unlikely the Biden administration is going to sit on its hands and give up efforts to restrict greenhouse gases, how might they respond to the ruling and claw, try to claw back power for themselves? And if successful, what would be its impact on climate and dangerous weather events? Well, yeah, two different questions there. So yeah. how might the Biden administration respond I think it's going to be much more difficult for them. I mean, there's a lot of things they could do with coal plants, for example. They, they could put laws in, and they have to some extent, about about waste coal, coal ash, uh, about water, about a lot of other things. But it, it, would, it would have to be more of a mosaic of things rather than just saying, um, um, Mr. West Virginia or Mr. Ohio, you have to get these emissions down this percent on all your power plants, uh, much more of a global thing. Uh, they, could, the, they could also do, I think, what, what Trump tried to do, which was, regulate within the fence by heat rates, you know, that basically yep. you couldn't say a power plant um, couldn't burn coal, but you could say that it has to operate much more efficiently uh, and look at the technical you know, side, maximum available technology, your best available, and use that to make it as efficient yep. as possible. They could do that. And actually, there, there've been, there's been a lot of progress, as, as uh, even Biden said, our uh, the emissions of the original six criteria pollutants in the Clean Air Act are down now uh, about almost 80 percent since uh, 1980. Carbon monoxide, sulfur dioxide, nitrogen dioxide, uh, lead particulates, and ozone. Uh, we've made great progress. Our air is the cleanest it's been in a long, long time in the United States, and that's that's very positive. But this this idea that we that uh, you know it's interesting. Got a quote from President Biden here. Where can I find that? So he said, quote, this decision, talk about the Supreme Court decision, risks damaging our nation's ability to keep our air clean and combat climate change. Well, it, this decision on carbon dioxide does nothing about keeping our air clean. Carbon dioxide is not a pollutant. We breathe in only a trace of CO2. We burn sugars in our bodies. And so every time every person exhales, we exhale a hundred times the concentration of the CO2 that we breathed in. Uh, it has nothing to do with clean air. Uh, carbon dioxide makes plants grow. It's great for the biosphere. Uh, it's, it's really this whole issue of, of uh, this obsession with carbon dioxide and, and man-made global warming. And the second half of the question? Yeah, right. So uh, pre preventing dangerous weather events, that is... <laughs> That's one of the biggest misconceptions. Matter of fact, in the IPCC sixth assessment report and the previous assessment reports, they said something like, um, it's not likely or it's, it's, uh, 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 not able to be determined that weather is actually worse, that weather, that uh, storms are stronger, more frequent. Uh, there's much data on this. 
showing that that uh, not only the data shows that, that we're not seeing stronger storms, but the physics behind it uh, doesn't support the idea that storms are getting stronger. Uh, like Roy Spencer of uh, University of Alabama Huntsville points out, weather is caused by the difference in temperature between the equator and the poles. Mm-hmm. Sunlight falls more directly on the equator, and so we get a lot of, of heat absorbed falls indirectly on the poles and so all weather on earth is is uh, caused by that temperature difference storm fronts hurricanes everything else the larger the difference the more likely storms are to be stronger and more frequent well what we have naturally when the earth warms is the poles warm faster than the tropic regions faster than the equator so that temperature differential decreases If anything, this warming period is going to reduce the strength of storms, reduce the strength of, and number of tornadoes, not the other way around. So not only does it, the data not support the idea that, we're, that we have more dangerous weather, but the physics doesn't either. Nevertheless, as you know, every time we have a hurricane, every time we have a drought or a flood, people attribute it to, to uh, the, the power plant or, or the guy's SUV next door rather than than the natural factors, which are really what, what are driving these things. Steve, big picture. If there's one message you'd like our listeners to take away from our discussion today about West Virginia v, v EPA, what would it be? So uh, this is great news for the American consumer. This is great news for states uh, that the EPA cannot impose uh, measures on the nation's power plant system, the nation's electrical grid, which are not going to have – they're only going to have two effects – they're going to raise prices to consumers were they to be imposed and uh, increase, uh, reduce reliability, increase the risk of, bl- risk of blackouts. That's what these green power plant policies do. Uh, f- for the listeners in general, they need to have a little more of a critical eye. Uh, they need to li- listen to what uh, you guys are putting out, the Heartland organizations and, and others, and understand that uh, climate is dominated by natural factors. There is no... Uh, regulation that the EPA can pass that will stop the oceans from rising. There's no law that Congress or any state can pass that will make the storms less frequent or less severe. Because climate is dominated by natural factors, thousands of laws across hundreds of nations are not likely to have a measurable effect on global temperatures. Well, succinct and uh, powerful. I appreciate it. We've been pleased you could be with us today, Steve. I want to thank you on behalf of myself and our listeners. Yeah, thank you, Sterling. And uh, they can go to stevegorham.com uh, or find my books um, on Amazon or uh, wherever books are sold. There you go. Listeners, thanks for checking in on us today. Please check Hartland's website as we follow the work of Steve Gorham and the Climate Science Coalition of America. And as we follow the progress of energy and environmental laws and regulations that affect you and go frequently to our PolicyBot site, your one-stop shop for free market solutions to public policy problems. In addition, if you're not already receiving these podcasts on your favorite device, go to iTunes and subscribe. And when you have the time, please rate our podcast on iTunes so you can help us expand the reach of free market ideas. Thanks. Take care. Bye. 